You're listening to All Marine Radio, broadcasting from Costa Mesa, California, on the All Warrior Radio Network. Broadcasting to you from Cherry Point, North Carolina, home of the Second Marine Air Wing. So, uh, back here doing post-traumatic winning, as most of you know, and uh, again. An amazing experience on a on a daily basis. Um, yeah, amazing experience is all I could say. The people you meet, the things they tell you, the stories they tell you. Wow, I mean it's crazy, it's crazy. Um, yeah, I just uh, you know I just feel really. <laughs> uh, blessed slash fortunate to be able to do this uh, as a second career, and uh, and then you know I I should probably have um, get ready to launch in conjunction with a couple a couple of uh, people up in Northern California a uh, a seminar. And uh, where we'll go through the post-traumatic winning presentation uh, with people and teach them the skills of it and discuss it with them. So, uh, yeah, kind of a pilot program going on. And uh, I don't know if there's any room in it left. But if you're interested, let me know, and I can send you their contact info. You can see if there is. We'll go through post-traumatic winning in about six weeks. Uh, I think it starts on Monday. And so, uh, <laughs> um, so yeah, so if you're interested. Uh, and then we'll open it up as kind of a seminar. People that are struggling with trauma. And it's been really interesting the 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 the, the where the interest comes from you know uh, emergency room doctors and nurses 
uh, social workers, uh, coaches, uh, people uh, that that are that are dealing with the symptoms of trauma, which might be alcohol abuse, um, and all of a sudden see this and they say, "Whoa." Maybe it's about time I dealt with the actual issue. <laughs> dealt with the actual issue. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm struggling today. Um, I'm struggling with trauma therapy. I meet so many people that go to therapy that it doesn't help. That um, I'm, I'm getting to the point... Well, I'm about ready to click off safe on the whole notion of therapy and that whole business. Um, you know, I'm sure there's good ones out there. But for the love of God, man. You know, I, I met somebody yesterday. Um, she's a young woman. And her father committed suicide. Devastating for her, right? She's been to four different therapists. And she told me it's it's awful. And she says, and I'm sitting here today. And she said, what what people, a lot of people say, it's like you were talking to me the whole time. It's like you were telling my story. And then you were speaking directly to me. I said, yeah, that is what this is. So... I'm telling you, it's very frustrating for me um, because what these people need is somebody. I mean, again, I tell people don't think of don't think of a leader because when we think of leaders as Marines, you know, we think of you know some Marine leader. Think of the be- think of the person that influenced your life today, the most. Not today, but the, that influenced your my- life the most. You can tell me who that was right now. Who was it? And you say, boom. What do they teach you? Well, I mean, I they taught me. I think that you know he was my he was my fourth period gym teacher or something like that. Like I don't, but they could tell you absolutely the impact they had on you. And so, so when I tell Marines about this, look, you know, <laughs> very few of us have a severe mental illness. Lots of us are struggling, and when we're struggling, I would compare and compass contrast with you what happened to me when I saw somebody decapitated and three other Marines die. And um, I got pulled into the tribe. I got pulled deeper into the long hunt. I didn't get sent away from it. Right? And so to me... Part of part of the solution in an organization is you gotta you gotta pull them into the organization, not send them outside the organization. Especially you know in an organization that's as powerful as the Marine Corps is, right? Whenever you get sent away from it, you know it's it's not a fun experience, you know. And um, all you want to do is get back in it. So I, I get a little frustrated. I get a little frustrated. And then there's uh, there's other problems in it uh, in the Marine Corps. Um, uh, the Marine Corps has gone through a period of time uh, where the staff NCOs have kind of backed out because you know a lot of the pack order and stuff. 
a lot of staff and CEOs view this as a job now. It's an eight to five job. And hey, that kid is not worth my career. And you know, that never used to be, be the way it was, at least uh, not my thoughts. And, and and I'll bring this stuff up the next time uh, Tim and Jeff and Will are on. And, and we'll kick it around. And so that space, I mean, think of a home without parents. Not very good, right? Well, the staff and CEO community, those are our parents. And when they pull back, that's that's not a good thing. So um, so you see it. And um, I... That's not supposed to happen. Um, so I... Uh, and and now this has become a bigger part of the presentation. And so it's interesting the number of staff NCOs that come up to me after the or during and after and say, Damn, sir, you're killing it. You're right on, man. That's our problem. And we have guys that have grown up in the Marine Corps like this. They don't know any better. Us older guys, we at least know what you're talking about. There's younger guys in here that look at you like, what is he talking about? That's not my job to know them like that, to love them like that. And you hear that, and it's it's honestly, it's stunning. Because when, you know, Will and Tim and Jeff and I, I mean, our time in the Marine Corps, you know, at the company level, you know, I mean, the staff and CEOs, I mean, they dominated the Marine Corps. And now they've taken a step back. And there's a price to pay in human death and higher suicide for that. Because if you think, you know, if you know where these kids come from, and I would say probably 60%, my own opinion, would say that they there was emotional abuse in their home. I'd say probably for, somewhere between 40 and 50% would say there was alcohol abuse in their home. I would say somewhere between 30 and 40% would say there's domestic violence in my home. Yep. And so the we recruit. That's what we, we recruit as a core. We don't know that, right? Leaders don't know that stuff. So they come in, and then they've gone through a school system that doesn't hold them accountable doesn't make them pay the consequences. And because they don't do that, and they don't do a whole lot of discipline, because they don't do that, you don't develop really one important, one really important life skill, which is overcoming adversity. How to say, yeah, that was my fault, and outwork it. Tight your belt, grit your teeth, bow your neck, all the things we got taught as kids. They don't have those life skills. They join the Marine Corps because they have good DNA. Who joins the Marine Corps? People that look at a challenge and don't say, yeah, that's not for me. They look at a challenge as they say, I'll try that. Now, that's a different That's a different cat. That's a different person. So then life rolls on them. Their life gets tough for whatever reason. Might be some stuff in the Marine Corps. Might be personal stuff. Might be the stuff that you know has plagued them in their life previous to joining the Marine Corps. And, but here's the difference. 
when they struggle, they don't have a gunny like I do, a gunny why, right, that is dominating the landscape. I mean, when I was a lieutenant, I wanted to be a gunny. It looked like the funnest job. You're out there, you're like the, you're the foreman on the construction site. The whole world is yours. You're out there every day, running the show, giving everybody shit. I mean, it was, it was, they were, the, they were the man. They were the ringmasters. And I used to sit and watch that and listen to them and laugh my ass off. Got some of the funny shit they said. But they were the dominant player. Well, now there's space there. And so when a young person who doesn't have a serious mental illness, who's getting their ass kicked by life, who doesn't have the coping skills, right, doesn't have the overcome adversity skills, who desperately needs that heavy hand on their shoulder and look at them and say, there's nothing wrong with you. You could do this. We'll teach you. They don't get that. They don't get that. And then, you know, then all the rest, then, then, they, then they go to mental health. Now they're outside the tribe. Completely different dynamic. So um, we're going to start talking about that stuff because I see it everywhere I go. And I have Marines come up to me and talk to me about it everywhere I go. So it's a it's an issue. So interesting, interesting stuff. I have Marines that uh, I was here a year ago, and they come up to me and tell me the cool stories about, hey, sir, I was here a year ago. It's This is better now. <clears throat> a Marine yesterday. I'm on leave right now. I came in and brought two of my Marines with me so they could see this. I told him it's that good. And he came down and talking about how much his life has changed and how he had deployed to Africa. And they were doing stuff in Africa. And he said, you know, I saw some stuff that, you know, I can't get out of my head. He said it was it was horrible. And um, and again, just, you know, life in a third world country, right? And he said, you know, and then I saw your presentation a year ago and it changed the way I looked at all of that. It changed the way I looked at myself, that I wasn't this damaged piece of shit, that I was normal. And he said, and uh, I, can't, I can't thank you for, for that. He said, that's why I brought my guys in today. So... Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, I kind of joke that I'm the coolest guy I know, but you know, I'm not really joking when I say that. I don't know anybody who lives a more, uh, blessed life than I do, who has, is at a spot and, uh, and, and has the opportunity to change lives like I get, like I have the opportunity. And, uh, so... Very cool stuff. So on a Thursday, let me tell you, Jeff and Tim will join me today. Will did not. And uh, we're going to talk about books. Yeah, so we recorded this last night. I played the bumper music, a song, a song, a song from 38 Special. You're probably familiar with it, but you'll hear it here in a few minutes. Um, the song, the title of the song is Second Chance. And so the first question I asked them was, if you get a second chance at anything in life, what would you, what would you, what would you take a second chance at? 
And they both had very interesting questions, answers, right? And, I mean, answers that surprised me. And then the second, then we started talking about books. And we kept talking about books. So it's a very interesting liberal arts discussion about things that we've read that we liked. And then ultimately we work our way to talking about Admiral Stockdale. So, uh, no, I, you, I think you'll absolutely enjoy it. The, Men- <laughs> the Mensa Brothers. Um, the Mensa Brothers hard at work. So, uh, and it's and now it's fun. I mean, now we're doing Skype and we have our cameras on. And it, honestly, it's funnier than shit. So, and we have a good time with it. So, uh, so yeah, very, very cool stuff. So, United States Marine Corps Band makes this morning official good this morning. Good morning to you. dedicated to two Marines I met yesterday. Uh, one whose father committed suicide, another one who who, uh, who came in to bring a Marine, two of his Marines to watch post-traumatic winning while he was on leave. And uh, again, I, I have the coolest experiences uh, in the world uh, meeting uh, these incredible young people and having an opportunity to help them navigate a life and show them a path and then help them help other people. So uh, this is dedicated to uh, to those two Marines. Uh, thank you very much for coming up yesterday. And uh, God bless you. And anything that, that I can do to help you, you know that we will do that shit.
you're betraying your whole life if you don't say what you think and you don't say it honestly and bluntly what keeps you awake at night nothing i keep other people awake at night for this campus had prepared him well <clears throat> i'm very confident that thank you very much <clears throat> if this was vodka it'd be a lot better speech <clears throat> <clears throat> but I'm not supposed to glamorize alcohol anymore, so young folks, you ignore what I just said. We just have to execute. And we are executing every day, and Sergeant Major and I are very proud of what you do. Doesn't mean we can't get better. We don't, we don't want to make a mistake to learn. We don't want to lose to learn. We cannot lose if we have to go fight. We got to do what these Marines did here 75 years ago. Persevere against difficult challenging conditions and odds and win. You gotta win. Time for us to check the weather here on a Thursday. And just know that it's a uh, let's see, how many hours? Before we normally start, uh, it is about an hour and a half before we would normally start the show. So just know the temperatures should be cooler across the board. But uh, currently in Quantico, it is sunny and 33. Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune, it is cloudy and 36. Yikes. Yeah, here at Cherry Point, they shut down the base for two hours this morning so not going to open the base till 10 o'clock so everybody got to sleep in uh they were expecting rain and snow overnight so some predictions were of ice and uh, that's never a good thing especially for people that aren't used to driving on it yeah no bueno (laughs) currently in 29 palms it is dark cloudy and 38 Marine Corps Base Camp Pendleton, clear dark at 40. Camp Smith in Hawaii, dark cloudy and 69 degrees. Okinawa, dark cloudy and 59. In Afghanistan, in the Helmand Province, clear dark and 50 degrees. And in Ramadi, it's sunny and 65. So, got that going for you at the home of All Marine Radio. Or I am not. It is dark, cloudy, and 44 degrees. Holy smokes, man. Southern California looking for a high today of 62 with rain. Man, what's up with that? Back here at Cherry Point. It's not good, man. It's cold. Anyway, um... We won't take a break. You're going to hear a little beep, and then you're going to hear Tim Lynch and Jeff Kenny on a Thursday edition of All Marine Radio, the Mensa Brothers. And uh, so uh, that'll do it for me by myself here for the uh, All Marine Radio Hour here on a Thursday. We'll see you tomorrow. Hopefully, the chef will join us tomorrow, and uh, Greg Lotus will join us. So uh, that'll be interesting. Um, yeah, so... Uh, 
two-thirds of the Mensa of the Mensa Act. Join me right now. Hi, I'm Colleen McNamara, and you're listening to my dad on All Marine Radio on the All Warrior Radio Network. This song is called Second Chance by a group called 38 Special. Joining me this Thursday morning is uh, from McAllen, Texas, is uh, the one and only Tim Lynch. Tim, what's going on? Hey, not much, Mac. How you doing? I'm all right. And joining me from uh, San Clemente, California, the night, the Nightingale himself, Jeff Kenny. Jeff, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Mac. The um, the, the name of that song is Second Chance. If you could get a second chance at one thing in life, what would it be, Timmy? Education, uh, particularly high school, junior high. I, I, I would have uh, paid a lot more attention. It, it, uh, it hurt me later on in life that I had to go back and remediate simple math and simple writing skills. Really? Yeah. yeah. I think that's where I'd go all the way back. You would go back to middle school and pay attention? Yeah. Yeah. And pay attention. No, what, I absolutely what, would. Wait a minute. What were you doing? What was, what was your dad doing? He's a general officer, man. You're, and you're being an idiot? No, I was, yeah, I was, I was being an idiot. I, I, I kind of would get passed along by the grades, but my, right. by, by, I would get passed up. I was a good athlete. So I was, I just had, an, I made my grades enough that I could play on the sports teams. It was the only thing that motivated me to do anything was just keep my GPA high enough. I could play sports lacrosse specifically. Got it. Yeah. Got it. All right. Jeff, if you could have a second chance at anything in your life, what would it be? Well, it's kind of like a offshoot of what Tim was saying. It's like I would have learned languages. Yeah, I love them. they're fascinating to me, especially the uh, the less you know well known ones, like uh, the ones we saw in Iraq, Afghanistan, and so forth. But uh, I wish I had. Uh, I always had an interest in it. I just didn't have the discipline for it. And I wish I did when I was when Tim was talking about the the uh, the late part of my junior year days, you know, seventh grade, eighth grade. There is a program where you, I, I went to catechism and they talked about it, where you could go to like St. Rose Church and they would teach you Latin and Greek, reading, how to write it, how to speak it. And I, and I was interested in doing it, but I was playing football and I was being a kind of a dildo, like Tim was saying. And so uh, I didn't, but I wish I had now because uh, it would have made me, I, I think I would have had, a, I would have been more valuable to the Marine Corps. Um, and uh, I think it would have been uh, it would have enhanced you know my whole life. Well, yeah. I'm trying to think what, what if I could go back and uh, and what would I do specifically? I don't know. I will have to think about that. I'm glad I didn't ask myself that question and just asked you guys. <laughs> you know, Mac, there's. The other question is, what do you regret? That's the worst one. Oh, are you kidding me? Do we have time for that? 
No, I don't think so. <laughs> we don't even have time for we don't even have time for last year for me. <laughs> we, had, we were on for an hour and forty minutes last night talking about nothing. If we talk about something substantive about the things you regret in life, I mean, we'd be yeah. on here for nine hours. Well, you mentioned yeah. second chances. You know, there's a, the book Lord Jim by Joseph Conrad. That's the greatest book about a guy trying to get a second chance and horror of horrors gets it. You know, and what happened and what happens story. well he uh he, he makes the most of it hold on your microphones uh, we can't hear you very well i can't well what happened with uh can you how about now that's better yeah you're good okay well he uh he did an act of uh, negligence as a uh, merchant marine officer in the late 19, part of the 19th century in the Far East, the British guy. And um, they basically, him and this crew, abandoned uh, a bunch of Muslim pilgrims on a big old rusty freighter and uh, thinking there's no hope. And uh, he promised them he wouldn't abandon them, but he ended up doing it. And then they're in the lifeboat and they come, uh, they, they round the point of, I think it was uh, like, uh, um, uh, Singapore, and there is the boat, the U.S. the SS Patna, and uh, and so he's just he 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 forces himself to go through a tribunal where he's stripped of his uh, commission, and uh, he's just kind of hanging around all the crappy ports, like uh, you know, like around uh, around the you know Vietnam and uh, and and Burma and Singapore, and he's uh, and he has a chance to help uh, this one merchant wants to uh, help a friend of his who's up the, I think it's the Mekong River, I think it's Vietnam, where there's this re- renegade uh, um, uh, French mercenary who's got this whole population, a couple thousand people, that he's just exploiting. And uh, and he does it, and he succeeds. And then he's he's got this, uh, you know, the, the people are so grateful, they want to have this kind of like a regent of the place, and then um, another group of ne'er do wells, to say the least, they get wind that there might be gold up there. They go up there and try and uh, try and steal it, and they end up killing some people. And he he uh, he promises the chief that I will get rid of these guys, and no more of your people will be killed. And I I'm t- promising that on my life. And they've already lost a couple people that were dear to him uh, in the initial assault. And he says, "Okay, I'm holding you to that." And uh, so he tries, he makes a deal with this guy and uh, the guy double crosses him. More of the people, the town are killed. And the last part of the thing, you see him, he's dressed in his, uh, his merchant Marine officer's uniform. And he gives his, uh, he's got this top of the line, like a, like a Winchester 4440 that, uh, you know, made him ahead of everybody else. Gives it to the chief of the tribe. They're burning the uh, bodies of the people who were uh, killed at a funeral, and the uh, the tribal leader shoots them. <laughs> but uh, that is one of that's one of Joseph Conrad's most famous books. He's the guy that wrote *Heart of Darkness*, that like *Apocalypse Now* is based on. He wrote a lot about European dudes going to the back of beyond to um, to exercise or to get rid of things that they felt bad about. And uh, but that book, *Lord Jim*, is they made a movie out of Peter O'Toole and like. 1963 or something. Peter O'Toole was a good guy, obviously. 
Eli Wallach was the French bad guy, and then James Mason was the really bad English guy later. But it's a it's a great film, um, and I recommend it to both you guys if you ever get a chance. You might have seen it, you know, sometime in the past. But if you ever want to see, I don't even know if it's on Netflix. It would be something you could probably dredge up. But it's a great flick. Peter, it's the movie he made before he made Lawrence of Arabia. Awesome. I've got a question for you. Here's what? A, all right. Give me a book that changed your life. Timmy? Oh, well, that's actually easy. Um, as I said, I was, a, I was a very, very poor student. And about my 10th grade year, my mother gave me Michener's Centennial. And I devoured it. For, for some reason, that way of talking and chunking information appealed to me. And it started... Uh, up a habit which didn't improve my grades but I spent the rest of my high school and junior high school times reading and, and so that very first book because it stimulated an intense interest in how things got to be the way they are set me on the course of reading for the rest of my life and that's that was the only thing that compensated for my piss poor academic preparation prior to college so Michener's Centennial Centennial I remember it clearly amazing. And and, and and you and the reason that it changed your life was somehow it kickstarted you intellectually. Yeah, well, it, intellectually to know what the hell to, to know why things are the way they are. Michener has an excellent way of not only bringing you from the from the plasticine era up to the modern time, but he also talks about things that are kind of important, such as what you know, why are we the way they are? Why are things the way that they are? Uh, in the world. And I and it started me on a on a Michener kick, you know, and the more I read about that stuff, the more I felt like I was learning something that was of useful knowledge to me at the same time, not realizing that that uh, my inability to balance a checkbook uh, or, or even or even probably set up set up a, a mortar firing line adequately with my with my atrocious skills at the time uh, was a true deficit that I was carrying. But I felt like I was like I was a polymath, like I was I was accumulating knowledge, but it was it was fictional knowledge. But I, I mean, I learned a hell of a lot. You know, I could talk about South Africa. I could talk about. I read the uh, the Israel one. Uh, I read the one on on uh, on Ireland. I, that that stuff was fascinating. That was all before I was out of high school. I'd read all those books. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's interesting, Jeff. How about you? Book a that, book that it's, it's, that changed it's your more life. More than interesting. What Timmy said. It's more than interesting because the book I would say was the source, which is the James Michener book about Israel. That, that's I, it. My parents uh, picked that book up in like 19, um, well, I was like eight, and I started reading it. And just like Tim says, there's a, it was like, it was, it was paperback because, uh, you know, they weren't going to spend a lot of money on books, but it was so thick, it was abnormally huge. It was like the <laughs> paperback copy of, the rise and fall of the Third Reich, you know, <laughs> which is almost like fighting the Third Reich to get through that book. But anyway, but the, the uh, but the source was exactly like that. Started, you know, in um, you know Neolithic oh, times and went all the way up to uh, 1964, and so and you learned a, a little bit about a lot of time periods, and uh, it engendered fascination in me, which mm -hmm. I think is a, the best job of a teacher is to make the student fascinated with the subject. So on his own, he broadens whatever it is the teacher brings. And that's what that book did. And uh, 
And then I started reading history. And a lot of the things that stories Mitchner had, everything from two of them were about the Crusades, one in the beginning of the Crusades and one near the end, two of the vignettes. And uh, I found out that uh, I didn't agree with everything he was writing because I, it forced me to read other history that I thought was uh, better researched. But the beginning of it was him doing that, you know. And then, like Tim said, I read all the rest of them. I mean, I, I finally got sick of it after uh, um, um, the centennial one. Because I was waiting for, I read a, a guy was like making fun of James Mitchell. He said, James Mitchell's next book, Staten Island. Which is where <laughs> he go from, you know, all the way through till, uh, you know, from zero history till uh, to the modern day. But uh, yeah, that was, uh, and then that's kind of connected to the whole Latin Greek thing, you know. Because um, mm-hmm. I was interested, I thought, it's, it mentioned, it hit on it several times in that book, the the different understanding you get from speaking somebody's language that you don't get just, just through an interpreter, you know? Yeah. Wow. I, I, I probably spent two days out in a Dash D. Margot looking for that goddamn gigantic fortress he was talking about in his book on Afghanistan, which I yeah. have determined to my satisfaction <laughs> did the, not the exist. Pyramid, the Pyramid of Skulls. Remember that? Yep. I remember that too. James- James uh, Genghis Khan. So I'm there. I start working for General Neller in Okinawa. And he goes, uh, has anyone ever read the book Caravans? So I, I'm like, I couldn't believe General Neller read Caravans. So ah, we, went good the whole, we went through the whole thing together, sitting there in the conference room with Duffy White on the VTC, waiting to get asked uncomfortable questions by, uh, by General Neller. You know? was, was, was Duffy in, in Kandahar at the time? No, man. He was still in Hawaii. Ah. He was the uh, third Marines, you know? Huh? Yeah, that, that's uh, no. It was it's it's interesting how that stimulated because the next thing I ran into, uh, actually prior to that, the only stuff I had really read were these FMFRPs that my dad had yes. about Vietnam. So yeah. I was reading all these things about uh, booby traps, and I, I was kind of. I remember as kids, we would try to devise some of those things, you know, that we <laughs> see on these, and and, uh, and try to make little booby traps, and we're playing but war you know, against but, each other. You know, Timmy Mac talk about he says the footnotes yeah you know, the, the that's what you develop when you reading that book like Michener. you're like i want to find out how this guy found out mm-hmm. and then it leads you to other you know it, it's just uh the best thing and it just stuck with me uh you know uh all the way through and then like i got to see some places because the marine corps that that were that were the same type of thing just for, by being there like iran and then uh you know i, I went to europe uh you know, the next post and was in Greece for a little while and stuff. So I, I actually uh, seeing the stuff for real and hearing the people really talk. You know, I think there's an understanding you get. You can't get from just uh, using interpreters or watching. the. You know, yeah, there's, there's, there's no question. And when you when you show up on Libo in uh, in Israel, you know what Maccabi beer is. You say, oh, Maccabi, yeah. look. Yeah. What's a Maccabi? Ah, it's an old warrior from the ancient times. Don't yeah. you guys know anything? Yeah. The Ma- I thought Judy it was the Maccabee. Yeah, I thought it was Maccabee. I think it is Maccabee. Yeah, because remember he yeah. had a colonel. Yeah, general, general. Remember General Maccabee? No, nah. yeah, I don't he think retired, so. He was he was a well known hard ass. Um, <laughs> he, he retired, I think, around two thousand five. You know, yeah. uh, my it's interesting because the book I would tell you that was life changing for me was is written by a Jewish rabbi by the name of Harold Kushner, and the name is When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Yeah, Good People, yeah. Oh, I heard of that. I never read it. Yeah, yeah I, I, read I read it when uh, I, 
my roommate, Kevin McGarry, um, I had this, my family was going through a lot of shit, and, uh, and I didn't understand it. And so I was trying to. So I'm, I'm, I'm at the University of San Diego, and I take a li- religion classes as electives because I'm trying to understand why God has done this to my family, right? And, my, and the wheels are coming off. And so I'm, I'm looking for an answer. And I'm not finding anything. I read existentialism with Jean-Paul Sartre, and I read all this stuff, right? And and I go to you know religions of the world, and and I'm looking for something to, that I can understand this thing that's happened to my family. And I I told my my roommate, I said, you know what, you know, and raised Catholic, right? With all, you know, with all the rights there into pertaining, and all the misinformation that I got there into pertaining. Not that I mean, I just think that. You know, as you grow up and, and you go to religion classes, and, and, and I don't know that people really have a great understanding that are charged with teaching you, and they teach you what they teach you. But anyway, I tell, so I tell my friend, McGarry, I said, hey, you know what? I don't think God's got a spreadsheet on everybody. You know what I mean? I don't think God's like watching Jeff Kenny and say, oh, just cut somebody off on the 405? Well, your car is going to get keyed in Stater Brothers, okay? Now— I don't instead of us parking lot. So that's why that exactly, right? I don't think God does that. I mean, I think God's a you know a, a cool guy, and he's up there. And when he when he made Earth, he like grabbed some dirt and he fashioned it. And I mean, he's God, so he's got all these smoking hot chicks and bikinis around the pool, right? And he says, "Blowing it for good luck, baby." And then he blows on it, which is blowing life into it. And then he fires us out there, and he's like, "Hey, good luck." And he's there to inspire you, but he's not pulling the strings. And so my friend McGarry, I drop him off in San Jose going from San Diego to Sacramento home for Christmas. On the way back, um, we're talking, and um, he says, hey, I, I used to call that my shake and roll him theory. He goes, I saw your shake and roll him theory in a book. I said, What? He said, yeah, I'm not going to tell you any more about it, but you got to read the book. And uh, so that's how I come across when bad things happen to good people. And the story is uh, this Jewish rabbi, Harold Kushner, he, his son, I think at the age of nine, um, develops a, this genetic disorder where you age rapidly. And he dies, I think, at the age of 14 as like a 90-year-old man. And all the things he said to people in his life, right, there's a purpose in this, right? God needed more than you do. God only gives you as much as you can handle, right? Everybody says this shit to him. Time heals all wounds. And you know what his, you know what his attitude is? Fuck that, right? You know, this, this boy was absolutely innocent. Why would a loving God, you know, do this to anything, you know, with such innocence? And so he, he goes. Yeah, why create him if you're going to do that? So. Yeah. And, and again, so you know, which begs the question of the Holocaust: Why would why would a compassionate God, you know, and and the g- mental gymnastics people do about, you know, God's will and all this other stuff, you know, and and what he ultimately says is, look, God is there to divinely inspire me. He is not. He doesn't have a spreadsheet on everybody, and he's not keeping score. You're down here as a human being, and you're subject to the human condition. That's why Hitler exists. Why? That's why diseases kill innocent people. But but I ne- I never had that thought in my head before, right? I mean I, I 
I, I, I kind of evolved. And so when I read that, I mean, it, I think it, it helped me very much in life, understand the randomness of life, the human condition of life, and uh, and, and even what I, my family was going through, that nobody, my parents did this. This was something that they that, that, that happened to them. And uh, and that God didn't do this, and and so I I look back on that, and it was a uh, it was it was an important book in my life. Um, yeah, so I was, my my selection very much different from both of your guys' mundane historical works. So <laughs> superficial mundane historical works. Yes. The, yeah. The, <laughs> We're not the most dynamic, uh, dynamic duo, probably around Jeffrey. No, no, but no. We it's, had our again, it's just an interesting question, right? Give me a book yeah. that 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 changed your life. Uh, give me a book that you recommend to people uh, very rapidly. If somebody says, you know, hey, you, you have something I should read, give me a book that you recommend right out of the shoot. Oh, uh, the Gift of Fear by Gavin De Becker. I, I think particularly every woman in the world should read it, but I think everybody should read the it. The Gift of Fear. The Gift of Fear by Gavin DeBecker, who's a weird son of a gun, man. The Becker teamed up with David Grossman. You guys remember David Grossman, right? right? Oh, yeah. From the uh, the, the Killology. David Grossman in the not, in the beginning of the century was like the number one police trainer in the world. He From Helsinki down in New Zealand. He was on the road. But uh, but they teamed up, and uh, and Gavin DeBecker is now the, well, was at the time. He's the guy that provides all the bodyguards to the stars he's got the hollywood thing locked up not a proponent of the second amendment a guy who was raised by his mother saw his mother kill his alcoholic and abusive father at the age of six his mother was a prostitute raised in raised in uh by the city and and who developed into an incredibly bright and effective uh student of the human animal and so in the gift of fear is designed to teach you that a lot of the things that we do to ignore uncomfortable information actually aids in our own victimization. Falling for false teaming is is a is a one that that that, that immediately sticks up when you, when somebody comes up and says, "Let me give you a hand for that." To a woman, "Oh no, I've got this." Oh come on, well, I can give you a hand. We can get it up there quickly. We what? Well, ignoring the word no, huge, huge, huge flag. And so what what the book is designed to do is to alert you. By using vignettes of people who have, who have, who have not followed, you know, did not know this advice, to alert you to, basically, uh, uh, treat humans with common sense. Be able to de- be able to delineate between a, a predator and a non-predator. Let me give you a perfect example with it, uh, teaching your kids not to talk to strangers. Is that something that you guys followed, or you've heard that, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely, the worst thing you can do, according to Gavin De Becker. The one thing you should teach you, first off, he would say, a child has no business being responsible for his own safety. That's your job. But if the child ever got separated from you, the child should know instinctively to go, preferably to a woman, and say, I've lost my mommy. I need your help. Because at that point, you've basically got a female lioness. It's, the chances of her being victimized by a random woman are z- almost zero. By a random dressed security guard, a little bit higher. Not not high, but not zero because of the kind of people that take uh, low paying security uh, guard jobs. That's a perfect example where people would say, well, go find the policeman. Well, the kid might think that people, anybody that's in a uniform is a policeman. The best thing to do for a child would be to go find a woman 
preferably one with another child. It's stuff like that, that when you read it, you go, shit, that makes perfect sense. Because the child sees you talking to strangers all the time. When it, when you're in the checkout line, you talk to the lady, oh, that's a cute child. Well, tell the lady your name. What? You know, so she sees you interacting with strangers. Child's got to learn how to interact with strangers and be able to, de- to determine whether the stranger has uh, their best intentions in mind. I think I that's think ridiculous. Cool. What happens if your child makes a mistake? If the child if the child has slipped from your grasp and is now cast adrift in a mall, whether that child makes a mistake or not, the child's screwed. He's got a better chance of not making a mistake if he if he if he immediately knows to go to go to a woman and knows enough to say what the heck the problem is instead of being coy. That's another thing children don't do. So his recommendation is you should actually teach your children to go up and talk to strangers. You specifically should. Well, and, uh, I, I don't I think I don't think you're good. explaining it right. If if uh, if you're teaching a child to go to a woman, that's that's different than saying go talk to a stranger. No, I'm I'm yeah, I know. But what he says is is in the course of the day, as you're raising your child and taking your child with you, you should encourage that child to talk to strangers. They should get used to doing that. But but on the mm. off event, I mean, I, I I never had a child when my when my kids were young wander away from my my or, or my wife's effective control we never had that issue right. but had we had that issue they knew what to do because i had drilled them on that stuff because i'd read that uh i'd read that when i think i was a second lieutenant but i love that book because the book is it's full of stuff that you didn't think of but when you read it it makes perfect sense and there's big takeaway messages that denial denial is not a river in africa denial is the most common reaction to unwanted possibly life-threatening news that most that's that's the the first reaction of most people is immediately denial this can't be happening got it oh those four guys aren't walking towards me at this dark place this can't be happening that's and and his point is that you got to stop that all right you know all right jeffrey give me a book that you recommend immediately if somebody says hey got a book got a good book for me jeff to read huckleberry finn (laughs) perfect book it's a perfect book. And it's, uh, I mean, that you could argue that book should be like the last book in the Bible because, uh, the perfect book about a kid, uh, you know, abusive alcoholic father who's violent, no mom, uh, on his own, but he has a moral compass. He just developed, you know, and, and the adventures he goes to, adventures of Uncle Barry Finn, uh, they really, uh, they're really, uh, you know, very good uh, treatise on how your life should be without without being preachy about it in the least. You know, to me, it's it's America's best book, Huckleberry Finn. Huckleberry Finn. I've never read it. I you should read it. Yeah, I should take I, it. I haven't since you I read was a kid. Uh, Slaughterhouse Five. Now read <laughs> Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> in a way, Billy. In a way, Billy, um, the dick, the, the the main character there. He's kind of like a, a wayward Huckleberry Finn himself, but he's not as uh, he's not as uh, <laughs> capable as Huckleberry Finn. The uh, I, you know, off the top of my head, uh, the book I recommend. I'm trying to think is uh, if it's a military book, it is uh, Fahrenbach's kind of war. I, I think it was. It's still one of the best books I've ever read. Uh, he's a great writer. Um, I think that you know you see uh, America in different uh, 
postures as we approach Korea. And I just think he does a great job of of uh of painting a picture of uh you know, you know I mean, and obviously he's very flattering to the Marine Corps. And uh I that's a book I, I tell people it's one of the one of the best books I've ever read. Um so if it's a, it, so somebody who might be interested in military, I, I I without hesitation, you know, mention uh Fahrenbach's book. You, you, you know I I've read all, I've read most all of his other books since I since I got down here and right. found out he was a homeboy. I think Fahrenbach was furious when he wrote that book. And I say that because every other book you read, whether it's the history of Texas, the history of the Comanches, the history of Mexico, you'll run into that word ephemeral 30 times a paragraph. Man, everything's ephemeral with him. It's almost annoying how often he uses the word ephemeral. I don't think he uses it once in, in this kind of war. I mean, this kind of war is so fast paced. And uh, he was an he was an army intelligence officer. Right. I think he had something to do with that with that pres the, the POW the northern POW putting down that POW revolt towards the end of the war, oh, which yeah. which the army the army did a damn good job. But but his appreciation of the Marine Corps and he wrote a history on the Marine Corps, not a very good or comprehensive one. Where that comes from, I don't know. But his his writing in this kind of war is different than any other book he read. He, he wrote it's it sounds like it's coming from a guy who is furious to me just furious because there's a lot of because there's a lot in that book that you can get furious about well well yeah. the um all right hold on the uh I, I i have to tell you that the the reaction to our show about nothing <laughs> was was exceedingly was exceedingly positive. Oh, yeah, good. that's cool. Yeah, how about that? I, yeah, I, I tr- tell you the truth. I, I was wondering how that was going to come off. I know people had like uh, emailed me about the uh, the one we did about the best drinks to have, <laughs> and they loved that one. You know. All right, listen to this. Um, thanks. Love the Mensa Brothers show. I was rolling when it came to ball piercing. <laughs> Here's another one. Great show again. Excellent analysis by Tim today on the constitutionality of impeachment in the state of both parties. Patriot Party is coming. I love how brutal you guys are. And brutal is all capitalized. I love how brutal you guys are to each other. True friends. Brutal? <laughs> <laughs> Brutal? We're just, yeah. Yeah. yeah, they've never seen a murder boy. <laughs> yeah. That's brutal. Right. <laughs> I was I was doing my presentation and these things start popping in and as videos are showing, I look down, I see it, I see, and I'm laughing. I'm like and that's how I put it up. I I, I build it as you know, the Mensa Brothers meet Seinfeld, a show about nothing or something like that. And, and, and uh, but it was, we, look, I, it might sound stupid, but we had a good time doing it. So what the hell? No, that was, yeah. that's, yeah, I like, I like seeing each other too. We don't walk each other, over each other so much. Right. That makes it real. Yeah. What, um, as I think t- a lot of people listen to the show who used to have buddies in the, the Marine Corps or other services that they just, shot to shit and they don't realize how much they miss that until they hear it still yeah. hear other people doing it you know yeah. uh, give me a book that that 
would be a little bit off the beaten path that you enjoyed. And, and I want it to be a work of fiction. Oh. I'll give you one. I'll give you one. This is what made me think of it. I read a book written by, at the time, the president of the president pro tem of the California State Senate, a guy named James Mills. And the book is entitled, it's a piece of faction, right? So it's uh-huh. fiction based on fact. And it's called The Gospel According to Pontius Pilate. And it's a, it's it's a, an account of um, Pilate's encounters with Christ, with Jesus of Nazareth, and um, and I just found it, you know, because it's like he puts you there, right? The dialogue between Pilate: Why are you doing this? All you have to do is say this. And I can make this go away. And Pilate's wife is on his ass, right? This man is innocent. You can't allow this to happen. And Pilate's caught in this political dilemma, right? But it, it, I, I just, I remember reading it, and I was, you know, I knew it was, you know, it's fiction, but it was very well done. And uh, I really enjoyed it, you know, because, you know, as a, you know, you grow up and, you know, the, the guys like Jeff and I, you know, we grew up Catholic. I grew up going to Catholic school, and then, you know, and you, you know, you study this stuff, and then all of a sudden, here's this account of what actually got said. And even though I know it's fiction, it's like, whoa, listen to this, and it's very well done. So, uh, so I, I enjoyed it. So, to me, a piece of a work of fiction, off the beaten path, maybe a little bit that you would recommend. Well, it uh, it's off the beaten path for most of the country uh, uh, these days, but I would recommend Collapse by Kirk Schlitzer. That's the beginning of his four four, four volume his four book series about uh, the collapse of uh, of of America into a blue and a red warring factions, and it's uh, it's fun to read. Not educational, other than the fact that it brings to light a true sad reality about. Civil wars when both sides are fighting view each other as an existential threat, and that is killing people becomes very very easy, and uh, it's one of these things that 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 we know that I don't think everybody understands just what the difference is between our feelings for Joe Ragman the Taliban, you know, versus our feelings for somebody from uh, uh, that that's trying to take this country away and do away with us and our rights. As citizens of this country, those are two different enemies. One of which you can treat professionally; the other one, that's personal, and that's what that's what's transmitted in these novels, and they're they're alarming. Uh, uh, unless unless you're not alarmed by somebody shooting a lot of people rather gratuitously, but he does a good job of depicting what the hell could happen if things go very badly. All right, Jeff, piece of fiction, off the beaten path. Yeah, off the beaten path. Um... Uh, I have to say, the Bonfire of the Vanities by Tom Wolfe. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it was. Uh, the movie sucked, but the book was great. Yeah, the book's good. And uh, Tom Wolfe is, uh, you know, if you read the right stuff and you know some of his other things, he's uh, he's an excellent writer. And uh, that is kind of not my usual cup of tea, you know. But it was, uh, it's a great story, well done, great characters. You know the way he describes the urban. Uh, 
type of urban people in New York in the 80s. You know, uh, very, very good. Well done. I'd recommend it to anybody. Didn't he write A Man in Full? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's another, another good, one. good one. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's another good morality tale. For, uh, yeah, because the guy was like a, became a stoic. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he did. I mean, he lost all his money. Yeah, he lost all his money. He's like, am I going to just turn into an asshole now because I had some bad luck? Or am I going to deal with it? You know, I'm going to. Yeah. And so he embraces stoicism, right? Yeah, exactly what I'm doing now. I think it works out well. <laughs> <laughs> Epictetus. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. I, I want to ask you a question, and we'll end on this, but I think it's interesting. Um, can you think of a more serendipitous um, leadership match than – so this is, uh, this is a legitimate open-ended question to both of you – than James Stockdale, right, and his understanding of Stoicism, right, which is fascinating. He goes – the Navy sends him to Stanford to get a degree in international relations, and he does, but he's he, he's bored with it. So he goes and gets a second one in philosophy, right? And uh, you know, and that's what he says that this is philo- you know, being a philosopher is, is is who I am. And so, a a a amateur Stoic philosopher into the Hanoi Hilton, where he leads, you know, approximately six hundred, mostly aviators home through torture through solitary confinement um through multiple years of war in captivity and he leads them home with a four percent rate of ptsd while everybody else comes home from vietnam with 30 percent rate of ptsd right um so i mean to me stockdale is this i don't know that you would have found a greater leader more prepared for that task Right, that that extremely nuanced, unique task than Stockdale, you know, at the time, and so I'm, I'm so uh, uh, so an open-ended question: Can you think of a leader, another leader like that, that whose skills were so tailored, almost perfectly, to the situation that they were thrown into? Yes. Who? I'd say well, George Washington, the first one that jumps to my mind. Because I don't think anybody else could have um, could have done what he did, because of the way he led his life before that, um, and then everything, every challenge he had during the revolution, he 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 did it admirably, admirably, and and uh, you know so that he was the, the natural um, first president, and then he he's like the it's like you know to me Iwo Jima is the is the model of all battles because if you can do Iwo Jima, you can do anything. It's horrific. But when you look at the model for all leaders, you know, um, he, George Washington is our first and best probably because, you know, he faced adversity. You know, no one could ever say the guy's a genius. No one could ever say the guy was, a, you know, uh, you know, a superhuman guy. But, you know, he was a decent guy. He was a decisive guy, and he – he led to the force of his example, I think, saved a lot of lives and also, you know, built our country. So, but I have to tell you, it's not as dramatic as the Stockdale thing, because the Stockdale thing is, uh, you know, is a guy who's put in a situation almost like being in Auschwitz, you know, uh, and uh, and yet to shine through, to shine through that when 
for years, the only communication you have is the fact that because you're a naval officer, you're trained to do Morse code and you're banging through the walls and stuff. I mean, him and uh, I think to less to another big extent, Jeremiah Denton, those guys that had such adversity with nothing, um, no advantages at all, naked, you know, in that place, totally at the mercy of a cruel enemy. And yet to, to shine through like that and save those guys, right. save those guys for the rest of their life, you know. And uh, so, you know, to me, the only guy that leaps up to me now is kind of like George Washington, you know. But uh, there's a lot of worse men who've had more influence on history than George Washington and certainly more than, than you know, an Admiral Stockdale and guys like that. Those are good men who had an effect on history. Unfortunately, a lot of times you get guys who aren't so good, but they rise to the occasion of being good or the fact they're bad, they're on our side, like Andrew Jackson, and, and they're the right man at the right time, and then they push through. And another guy, and if Will was listening, he, would, he might chime in on this. The book we read about, uh, about the Mexican War, you know, about uh, Kit Carson and all that stuff, uh, the uh, Days of Thunder or something like that. What, I mean, oh, that, uh, oh, I know. Yeah. That, then you would say President Polk, you know, James Polk. Um, not a sweetheart, but the guy's singleness of purpose was to steal that the the western half of the United States, and he did it. So, you know, I'm kind of rambling here, but what I'm saying is, there's no better example than Admiral Stockdale of a good man in a bad situation. But, but again, not only a good man, Jeff, but he was uniquely. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, qualified. Yeah, he, he, you know, this this thing this thing he does at Stanford. You know that, yeah. that he writes about, and I'll tell you what I, um, and I'm go- I'm in the process of recording this because I, I I saw something on YouTube and it was some Brit guy reading a, uh, one of General Admiral Stockdale's speeches, and I thought, fuck, I'm going to do that, right? And yeah. I, I'm gonna put it, it's it's his Courage Under Fire speech that he gives at uh, King's College in London, right? Yeah, that's testing part of, part of Oxford, right. Yeah. Testing Epictetus's doctrines in a laboratory of human behavior, and so uh, so I'm listening to this Brit. I'm like, he's reading Stockdale. What's wrong with this? This is awful. And so I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna read this and put it up on 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 the website. But but this is um this is him talking about um I came to the philosophic life as a 38-year-old naval pilot in grad school at Stanford University. I'd been in the Navy for 20 years, scarcely ever out of the cockpit. In 1962, I began my second year of studying international relations so I could become a strategic planner at the Pentagon. But my heart wasn't in it. I had yet to be inspired at Stanford and saw myself as just processing tedious material about how nations organized and governed themselves. I was too old for that. I knew how political systems operated. I'd been beating them for years. Then, in what we call a feel-out pass in stunt flying, I cruised into Stanford's philosophy corner one winter morning. I was gray-haired in civilian clothes. A voice boomed out of the office, quote, Can I help you? The speaker was Philip Rhinelander, Dean of Humanities and Sciences, who taught philosophy six, The Problems of Good and Evil. At first, he thought I was a professor, but we soon found common ground in the Navy because he'd served in World War II. Within 15 minutes, we'd agreed that I would enter his two-term course 
in the middle and make up for my lack of background, I would meet with him for an hour a week for a private tutorial in the, in the study of his campus home. Philip Rhinelander opened my eyes. In the study, it all happened for me, my inspiration, my dedication to the philosophic life. From then on, I was out of international relations. I already had enough credits from the masters and into philosophy. We went from Job to Socrates to Aristotle to Descartes, and then on to Kant, Hume, Dostoevsky, Camus, all the while Rhinelander was psyching me out, trying to figure out what I was seeking. He thought my interest in Hume's dialogues concerning natural religion was quite interesting. On my last session, he reached high into his wall of books and brought down a copy of the Encrititon. He said, I I think you will be interested in this. Encrititon means ready at hand. I think I'm mispronouncing that, by the way. In other words, it's a handbook. Rhinelander explained that its author, Epictetus, was a very unusual man of intelligence and sensitivity who gleaned wisdom rather than bitterness from his early first-hand exposure to extreme cruelty and first-hand observations of the abuse of power and self-indulgent debauchery. Epictetus was born a slave in AD 50, and he goes on. And so, I mean, that's Stockdale. I mean, come on, are you kidding me? We don't know anybody like that. You know? Well, they, they, they teach Epicurus now at the Naval War College because of him. Right. He introduced that into the curriculum. As well they yeah. should. Right. Hey, yeah. let me think. Anything Stockdale did should be emulated because his, well, of you, just you, his extraordinary, um, his extraordinary achievements in the most brutal of conditions. And and that's why I say, as as I as I study the Stockdale paradox, as I as I as I as I as I, as I try to understand him better and, and the challenges of his life. I I don't know if I've ever seen a leader that was more nuanced, perfectly nuanced to the situation that he went to, into. To include, you know, he does this thing when you see him on interviews saying, when I ejected from my A4, right, as he flew into a flak trap, he says, as I'm descending, I know I'm going to be down here for between four and seven years. I know I'm going to be the senior POW there because I know everybody's been shot down. Mm. I know these things, right? I know I'm going to have to lead, and I know that that Epictetus's teachings that I've studied is the path that I'll, I, I will lead people down. And you're and you're listening to him say this. This is all on the descent, right? Right. Yeah. It's and it's amazing. And so I. Uh, the, when I when I see that, I you know it strikes me as I don't know that, that that I've ever heard of a more nuanced leader that was so perfectly prepared to lead under such conditions than Epictetus. But Jeff's point about about uh, about Washington is very good. You know. Well, you, you, know, know, I, you know, if I if I was to take a shot at that, I, I would say that uh, Razor Ray Davis, General Davis in Vietnam was a guy that was uniquely uh, uh, capable in that particular environment and very effective. But you'd have to be a student of the war to understand anything about that. We could go to Nimitz or, or, or Marshall, but, and, and, but 
But yeah, it's not the same you know, thing. I'll tell you what. It's not the same thing because it's. it's I don't a know. Whole I think you could, uh, about, Timmy. I think you. I think you could make a case. I think you could make a case for Marshall. You can make a case for Marshall, but it, but but it, and his character was revealed as cantankerous and and, and stubborn and and uh, pretty much right. But there wasn't the magic sauce that you that you find in that compelling story. You know, come the hour, come the man. Who the hell else could have parachuted in there and done the same job as Stockdale did? Uh, you know, I, I don't think there's many. When you were talking, Mac, uh, you mentioned Job, right? And so I thought, Job, how tempting must it be, particularly for guys who were Christian? I mean, Christian guys who were really religious, you know? Because Job, uh, the story of Job is analogous to what those guys went through. Okay. And the especially the questioning of why are you doing this to me, God? You know, uh, you, you, my family's gone. You gave me all these boils and stuff. I'm like starving. I'm like <laughs> suffer, suffer, suffer. And um, he was depleted. God says, and God says to him, "Who are you to question me?" You know, um, but that's a victory for Job, and it kind of where he he makes God acknowledge. That he's respond that he has responsibility, you know, and uh, but because of his training, his experience, uh, Stockdale doesn't even go there, you know. Right. He says this is this is my responsibility, right. you know. I'm sure he prayed a lot to God and everything when he's in there, but uh, he uh, you know, he didn't he didn't say to himself, "I've been a good man." And now this thing is visited upon me, and it seems like I've been forsaken by my own country. Um, especially when Jane Fonda and those people came in to visit later on after the the horrible stuff stopped, but the bad stuff was still going on. And uh, you know he didn't go there. He just uh, because of Ep- Epictetus, he didn't go there. You know because of the Stoic philosophy. So it's yeah. uh, interesting to me because. Uh, you know, there's that, that there's a great book by Herman Wouk, uh, the War and Remembrance, right. and uh, the the rabbi guys talking to the people in the ghetto, Theresienstadt ghetto, and every day more of them are being put on trains and sent to Auschwitz, and uh, and they know it's going to happen. And he starts, he gives them this sermon on Job. It's like the the best part of the book because he talks about the fact that God says, "Who are you to question me?" is a victory for Job. Because he's acknowledged that he is recognized by the Creator, you know, and uh, so it's uh, it's interesting to me. And those guys, those POWs, um, you know, especially Stockdale, especially Jeremiah Denton, and some of the other guys, um, they really uh, they went through the the essence of. Uh, it's almost like they were suffering for our for the nation's mistakes of the Vietnam War. It was visited all on them in a horrific way, and a lot of guys didn't come home; so they just didn't survive. So, yeah, that's a that's a good question about Stockdale, Matt. Well, you know, and and what's interesting is is part of the Stockdale paradox is you know uh, what Admiral Stockdale told Jim Collins when he, when Collins asked him who didn't make it out alive, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and Stockdale says. Um, that's easy. The optimist, mm. right, right, you're right. And and but what he describes as an os- optimist is somebody who has hope anchored in nothing. It's, it's just it's just right. empty, um, uh, untethered hope. 
And so I, I call that when, when life shoves you in the valley of the shadow of death, right, which they were, you were down yeah. there hoping and groping, right? Yeah. You know, and, and some people will, will medicate themselves down there. How, how is that getting you out of the valley of the shadow of death? And, and the answer is hope untethered to anything is nothing. Yeah. But Stockdale's, Stockdale's resolve, though, is based on his understanding of the Stoic philosophy, that he will, that, that the United States will get them out, that there is a way through, and he can only control you know, what he can control, and that is how he responds to these circumstances. And so, I mean, to you, me, you said a profound thing, though. You said a real profound thing. The um, hope without um, untethered, hope untethered, untethered from reality. Yeah, because every some real compelling things. I mean, think of the scene in the Deer Hunter when those guys are in the water underneath that hut where they're making them play Russian roulette upstairs, right. and everyone's just shocked at the cruelty of it, not doing anything. They're hoping that something will come and save them. And the, the, the Michael character says, you got to get three bullets and a gun and play against each other. It's a insane proposition, but his hope is tethered in, you know, doing something, you know what I mean? And actually trying to make their life better, you know, make their, make their situation better. And, uh, I mean, think of how many other things, uh, you know, in literature, and religion are built around that, you know, where you're in a desperate situation and, uh, you know, you can let yourself just be a victim or you can somehow try and figure out a way to get out of it, you know. And, uh, you, ahead, you know, there's an entire subsection of, of, of history that covers conduct of people on shipwrecks. I've read a bunch of books about yeah. shipwreck people. And what Jeff's talking about is 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 a, a dynamic you see. As a matter of fact, on one of those islands off of New Zealand, there were two groups who were shipwrecked together. They didn't know each other were there. One survived because they got organized. The other one uh, uh, perished almost to a man in the same time period, strictly over being able to rationally accept the circumstances you're under and start working incrementally at trying to survive. Because that's ultimately what we're all trying to do is survive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, you know, again, I, I because when I do this presentation, right, um, it, I see this. I listened to that thing. I've listened to it six times in the last two days, and you know, and I think about it, and and, and it gets in my head, and uh, and it makes me go down different rabbit holes in terms of these right. these kind of thoughts, which you know, which which I which I love, uh, which I love to do. But I and and that's what where I, I don't know if there was ever a leader that was more uniquely and nuancedly, if that was such a word, qualified, I think I just made one up, nuancedly, qualified than mm -hmm. James Stockdale was to lead at the Hanoi Hilton. He wasn't just a great yeah. leader. He was a great leader who had become a philosopher, and in and, and the genre of philosophy he studies, the Stoics, right, is the fourth path that I call the path of post-traumatic winning. Stockdale knows it. And he has complete resolve that they will get through, and he knows how to lead them. And he says this after the war. I never, I never said anything about the Stoic philosophers. I never said anything, right? Um, and and he talks about why he didn't, and it's fascinating stuff. But I just, I just think he's one of the most um, unique leaders in history. And even when you rack and stack Washington and Stockdale, because I think Jeff's point was very, 
um, is very interesting, and and that is this. Um, yeah, Washington did not have to lead under the duress Stockdale did. You know, and Stockdale, when you hear the stories that he tells about smashing his own face in, uh, yeah. right, about reverse mohawking his head, so he's living his back U.S., you know, the acronym they use there, right? B, never bow in public. A, stay off the air, right? And so he's living that. And uh, I, I don't know. I just um, – I watch it, and I'm. It's to me it's, yeah. it's fascinating, you know, that, that he would have um, that much – that such a nuanced understanding of the leadership he had to provide and then went out there. I remember I had a Stockdale quote – before I came in the Marine Corps, and and I don't I didn't know who he really was even, and and the quote was this: the test of character isn't hanging in there when there's light at the end of the tunnel. The test of character is persevering. Maybe he used the word persevering when there's light at the end of the tunnel. He said when there's no light at the end of the tunnel, and no hope of that light coming. And I remember, I remember, I remember that quote, and thinking when I read it, like, "Holy shit, man! That's 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 a pretty dark that's a pretty dark test." And and let me just let me just play for you the audio. I'll play for you guys, and then you guys can each react. But this is the good, the great um, piece that I play. And this is Jim Collins talking about Admiral Stockdale, and I played this in post-traumatic winning, and hopefully it works. I would like to give you a way of thinking that has been enormously helpful to me that came from the good to great research for dealing with great difficulty. And it was what we came to call the Stockdale Paradox. The Stockdale Paradox was taught to us by, when we were doing the good to great research, we're trying to make sense of the CEOs. And in doing that, I just by chance happened to get to... You're not hearing it? No, we're not hearing it. Oh, everybody else was. Um, (laughs) Shit. How do I feed that to you? Or why can't you hear that? I'm not exactly sure why you can't. All right. Well, damn it! I'd love to hear both of you guys uh, respond to it, but I don't know how to. I, don't. Well, I, I got one response on the Stockdale thing: six years of not bowing in public—that's a moral victory over their captors. I mean, that because because they were taking some ass whoopings to do that. Oh, they my. were taking some beatings. That's right. a moral victory that you can't, you cannot, you cannot overemphasize enough how big of a moral victory that is, and that's a. That's something to make you proud. And you read you know, and you, you read about it. it, you know, and it drove the Vietnamese crazy that they wouldn't. Oh, of course. Right? Because it was, yeah. they were losing face because he's American. That's exactly right. Oh, right? Japanese would have killed him. Right. Yeah, Japanese would have killed him for that. Right. I'm yeah. surprised the Vietnamese didn't. Yeah. Right. No, I, that, I just, whole, that whole thing is, is such a fascinating read about them in captivity and you know there was a one of the other guys who's constantly written about is robinson risner an air force lieutenant colonel at the time and everybody talks about what a baller he was and and when they get back into groups of 50 um the the group that risner's in decides we're going to have religious services 
And um, so they have on a Sunday, they, they have it, right? The Vietnamese guards hear it, and they come blowing in. And Risner stands up and says, we're not going to stop. And he gets smoked, right, with the butt end of an AK, right? And they're mashing the shit out of him. And all hell breaks loose. They drag him out. And as the story goes, they're dragging him across the courtyard to torture him, right, and back to solitary confinement. And the other 49 guys in that cell, that, that room, they start singing the national anthem. Huh. As they're dragging him across the courtyard, the guys in the, the next cell, the next 50, they hear it. They hear the commotion. They don't know what the fuck's going on, but they hear these guys start singing, and they start singing. And it ripples around the courtyard, right, of the Hanoi Hilton. And wow. and and cool. then um, Risner's quoted in his book as saying, as they drug me to solitary confinement, I felt like I was nine feet tall and I could hunt bear with a switch. And there's a statue built to Risner at the uh, at the Air Force Academy. Guess how tall it is? Nine feet tall. Nine feet tall. There you go. How cool is that? There you go. But I mean, I mean, and and, and what could be worse than solitary for those guys? I mean, Jesus, yeah. that was that's absolutely the worst thing they could do. McCain in solitary just, confinement for three years. I know. I mean, that's just I, most people. Most people are going to come out of there mentally unstable. Yeah. That's that's very difficult to keep your shit together for three years. It's I would imagine. I have enough time. <laughs> three days is about. <laughs> that's about way too much for me. Could you? I mean, and you hear McCain say that, right? And he yeah. says, you know, the last two years, um, you know, we were together. And we did plays and we did skits and, and, and we taught classes and we, you know, everybody, you know, went back and, and created, um, like algebra classes and geometry yeah. classes. And, and we, we did plays and we did skits and, and we would recite movies and, and we would put the, uh, so it was this incredibly vibrant intellectual place, right? And at the end of it, he says this. So it's not like I just walked out of three years of solitary confinement, right? Into the, into the world. And you're like, wait a minute. How are yeah. you ever right in the head after that? Yeah. Wait, who's uh, the guy in the corner sucking his thumb? Oh, that's Lynch. She was in solitary confinement for three days. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. No, <laughs> three, no, no, I would not. I, three years? Just hard to believe. Yeah. Hard to believe. That's why, I mean, to me, you know, as a... As a um... Or that kid who memorized all the... Fucking serial numbers. Yeah, yeah. that was a really great story. Ship, yep. you know? Yeah, yeah, that's that story is amazing. And then they those pre- guys saved each other. Is what happened? That's the story. Yeah. They saved each yeah. other. Yeah, and he couldn't and he couldn't remember him after he spit it out the first time, as I recall. He spit it all out, and that was it. He he didn't remember. Him. Amazing, amazing story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 he acts right, and so this kid memorizes all these names, and then he acts mentally unstable, right? Right, and, right, and that's how he's released in this humanitarian gesture. I can't remember, and that's how the Americans find out who the hell's in captivity. This, this, this kid who'd fallen off a ship, who's like Rain Man, who fakes his own like <laughs> mental instability, who gets released, and then he comes back and he spits out everybody's fucking name. So they, yeah, he was like, he was like an E two sailor. They can't claim that they never had the guy. You know, they kill a POW and then claim they never had, and then he died, you know, when he got shot down. Right. Now they can't do that because there's proof, you know? Yeah. Right. No, that, was a, that was a big deal when that kid did that. 
Yeah, and North Vietnamese thinking he was an enlisted guy, he's just a dummy, you know, like like they treat their soldiers, yeah. knuckleheads. No, no, that's why, and I I would say that's a long term um, uh, assignment for both of you. I mean, keep that in your radar of of a leader that was so nuancedly suited for his time, because to me, that's what's really unique about Stockdale is it wasn't just yeah. that he was a great leader. He he yeah. was nuancedly suited for that, and part of it was serendipitous. Yeah. But um, I think I think Slim I think Slim might fit that category. But Slim. I got to go back and yeah. look. Yeah, Slim and like Masood. Uh, yeah, uh, all oh, Masood was an excellent example. Against the Russians, and uh, well, I mean Lawrence Arabia. You know the guy. Uh, the guy had the you know he had the background for that job. You know before uh, the war started, and then he drove himself to it, you know, but, uh, yeah, there's, uh, there's another guy, um, Wingate, Wingate was another one who was, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't want to get a lot of these guys are just so eccentric, but so tough and driven that they made themselves relatively successful. It's not the same dramatic thing you're talking about, Mac, with the Stockdale, you know, uh, that'd be a, that's something you gotta think about, you know, I would say Hannibal, you know, that, that, uh, the, if you look at the, what he had to start with and how he almost brought the Roman Empire down, it's amazing, you know. And, uh, you know, so that's that's a guy. But I, t- I tell you, it just pales in comparison because of the how at a disadvantage guys in, in the, uh, you know, Hanoi were and what they, you know, and the fact they got out of there sane and better than sane, you know, and, uh, and did not uh, dishonor the flag, did not. That I, I think yeah, I think on the contrary, they they enhanced it. You know? Yeah, they did. There's no question about that. But I think Slim was the only modern general who walked into a shit sandwich and actually reversed it. Yeah. I, I can't think of any other. But again, I, to me, he does not have the right the the gravitas or or, or the situation is not. Although it was grave, I mean, it, it pales in comparison with the gravity of Stockdale's situation, right? Oh yeah, well you're you're yeah. There's two different things at stake right, here. Yeah, right. It's not yeah. There's two different things at stake. One's right. one's a country's reputation. The other one's your life and your sanity. Yeah. You for the, the individual. That's for, a, for for years. Which um, so no, I I just and I would uh, I would again the only the only I would rival offer you, would be Shackleton. Shackleton would rival him. No, you're right. And being uniquely prepared, and being uniquely prepared to guide a, a crew through. Uh, an unmitigated disaster and a hazard that they've never experienced and never thought they would. No. Shackleton might be, but I got to read about him. I'm not sure. Right. He could no. be a douche. No. That brings no. you to another great story: is mutiny on the bounty. You know, the bounty trilogy. There's a guy who caused the mutiny by being a, too much of a hard ass, but then he rescues the guys who are loyal. He's the only one who could have done that. It's a record, world's record for open boat, uh, sit, you know, sailing in the South Pacific. William Bly and his uh, 16 or 17 guys he got out of uh you know out of that situation they're set adrift marooned you know to die but uh but he's also partially responsible for the situation they put him in there you know so it's uh yeah. hey on a unrelated shit sandwich thing that book that uh, that that uh um Avito recommended the age of gold yeah it talks about the very first uh a schooner american schooner fast rig schooner to try to come around the Cape and go up there and make a record time to San Francisco. The captain and first mate beat three of the sailors to death 
that's how bad this the situation is with discipline. It's unbelievable. They they pull in, they lose like six or seven guys flying out of the rigging with frostbite. They got they're, they're absolutely anarchy on a ship. They get tried, convicted of murder, sentenced, uh, fined two hundred fifty dollars, <laughs> uh, and that was it. They got fined. Wow. Because of because because of the circumstances being on a ship and whatnot. But holy smokes, you want to read about some weird stuff. Some of the things you just pick up that you never thought about, like how bad it was to be on a sailing ship in 1848. Man, well, the best thing about that you say was worse than 1748. (laughs) Yeah, imagine so. Depends on the captain, though, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, right, boys. Um, We talked pretty good. Pretty good discussion. I can't believe it's us three. Well, you know what? Well, once once we jettison that bottom intellect. Will this this thing this thing takes off intellectually? Um, the um, no, you know, and it all started over the lyrics from Thirty Eight Special, right? Um, yeah. Starts Which we with we couldn't hear because I couldn't hear. I just know. Yeah, we couldn't hear that one either. You're, you're cutting us out of the. Why am I not feeding that to you? I need to solve that. I've got this new technology, and it sounds really good. No, but good. We, could, we could see we could see your head bobbing. So I knew the music <laughs> you were driving. We, you we were knew what to do. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're rocking out. I said, okay, here like we go, Michael Jeff. Jackson there, man. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. I'm yeah. Da- That's I'm, a question I'm, for you. Can you dance, man? I'm. Uh, yeah, I can. Yeah. Ah, there you go. There you go. That's how you got close to girls. Dancing machine. Exactly. There you go. When we were kids, that's how you got close to a woman, right? Or you told jokes. Either either or. Jokes worked. Jokes worked? About people dancing funny. Yeah, fuck yeah. Yeah. That was my route. Really? All right. All right, look, I'm going to bed. I'm on the East Coast. It's too late for me. Okay. Have fun tomorrow. Cut office, my friend. Cut office. Uh, You know what? We're not... I guess there's some kind of weather alert coming in tomorrow for the uh, for the Cherry Point area. The base isn't opening until ten o'clock, and so so yeah. A light dust in a, a light dust in the snow will shut the air wing down, bro. That's that's nothing. Yeah, but that's the coast, man. You might get some shit. Oh yeah, you could get hammered there. Strong winds subsiding, a little snow and rain. Early in the morning, clouds and breaking sun the rest of the day. Looking for a high of 41. <laughs> How, about there you go. How about that? How about that? All right. All right, boys. I appreciate the visit. Yeah, brother. We'll talk to you, man. All right. See you. Take care, guys. All right. See you later.